Church, everybody, so glad to be with you guys. This snowy daylight savings day. We have two obstacles in front of us today to get to church, right? The heck, what's going on, New England? Well, I'm excited to bring the word to you this morning. How many had a great time with Jonathan Tremaine Thomas? What a blessing. What a blessing to the body of Christ. Well, it's a hard act to follow, but I hope to, you know, somehow... Um, maybe there's something that he left up here for me, some kind of anointing that we can, no, just kidding. Um, listen, if you could turn with me to the book of Nehemiah this morning, the book of Nehemiah. We are in a new series titled In This Together, and this is our third installment. I really feel like Jonathan Tremaine's sermon to us last Sunday was right in sync and in line to our sermon series that we were in. I, when I invited him, I was kind of concerned. I was like, hey, you know, this might just like throw a little bit of a curveball into kind of the messaging or the heart and the tone of what we're going after. But I think, I think it was fitting. I think it was more than fitting to have Jonathan Tremaine speak to us. And, and what I'm saying, honestly, at the end of the day is that I feel as though his message, his word that he brought to us um, was right in line, right in sync to the series that we're in. And so this is the third installment. We are in the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to title this sermon, um, From the King to the People. No, it's just a title within the series title, but I'm going to title this sermon today, From the King to the People. Nehemiah, at this time, in chapter 1, is in service to the king. He's a cupbearer, and as a cupbearer, he was or has the responsibility to drink and eat the food uh, and wine before serving it to the king in fear of it being poisoned. How about that for a job, huh? <laughs> you know, you know, this little guinea pig right here, Nehemiah, you know, here's this, test this out. It was actually um, commonplace for uh, prominent figures to have been poisoned at this time, especially kings. And so as a cupbearer, uh, again, Nehemiah would have taste test the king's wine and ate the king's food before serving it in order to ensure uh, the protection, the safety, and the life of the king. A, a cupbearer was regarded as an honorable figure of his day, uh, a person who was seen uh, to be great in the eyes of his community. I mean, he's serving the king in such a noble way. He's putting his life at risk, obviously, for the king. A cupbearer's job was closely vetted and was really only available to a few, a very select few. And so this made Nehemiah even more so a special character, within the uh, Old Testament. It, it says that, um, when I'm saying it said, it, meaning the Bible says that Nehemiah's position as a cupbearer made him a trusted figure also. Um, an an, an inf, inf, influential, sorry, I'm going to try not to butcher the English language for you uh, this next 35 minutes. But um, he was seen as an influential figure, uh, especially amongst those of power. I mean, listen, if, if I'm the king and somebody's going to taste test my yerba mate... Or my filet mignon, like they're going to test it because there might there might exist the potential of it being poisoned. That person is going to be a very trusted, close, close, very close friend of mine. I'm going to keep him on my good side, or her on my good side. I'm not going to upset him. You know what I'm saying? So this 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 is the kind of relationship that we have to understand Nehemiah had with the king. I'm going to make again that person my best friend. I mean, this would kind of be on the same level as. Someone taking a bullet for you, if you could imagine, in today's, you know, kind of 
it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, so Nehemiah is a tactful companion to the king. His position would have given him a considerable amount of influence with the king. Nehemiah's influence and rapport gave him many opportunities to share his opinions openly and in a kind of unofficial manner with the king. He's kind of homeboys with the king. You know, if you can imagine. I mean, you know, this, this, this kind of position, this, this, this job that he has has given him such respects and such rapport amongst the king that he's able to kind of, I guess, for lack of better words, talk to the king in a very unkingly way, you know, a way that we wouldn't address maybe a king or somebody of honor. And so Nehemiah is and does, and we actually see a kind of informal conversation happen between Nehemiah and the king in chapter 2. And it just kind of shows this relationship that he has with the king. So you might be thinking at this time, what the heck does all this have to do with the sermon? Well, um, I, I think it is very important to the conversation this morning. I mean, given the prestigious position that Nehemiah held and the fact that he had inroads uh, to the people of power like the king himself, I'm sure things like, like, like these two realities that he had inroads to such people of power like the king probably would have provided for Nehemiah a sense of comfort and security, kind of like job safety. Like not only does he have this great job that's kind of, you know, hailed in the community as like, a, you know, he's a great person, great figure. Somebody's looking out for the king and he, and he has all this status, all this prestige. And, 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 and I'm sure that, that these things provided for Nehemiah a safe of a place, excuse me, of great comfort and security. There, there would be no reason to believe that Nehemiah would have any other reason to kind of abandon his position as cupbearer to the king apart from the word of the Lord. If you're tracking with me, we're going to get into it. But Nehemiah in verse uh, 2, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 2 of chapter 1, is about ready to get some tragic news from a close friend of his and some men who have recently returned from Judah. And in other words, Nehemiah is, is going to hear some things in which he's not necessarily like, but what we need to understand is up until this moment, Nehemiah's life, well, it's good, it's good. All is well and swell for Nehemiah. If we could put up verse two of chapter one, I forgot my Bible here, it says, I'm not even going to pronounce his name, but one of the brothers came with a certain man from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem? It's amazing what one casual inquiry can do to a person. Have you ever just asked somebody a simple question, and the answer totally transformed and revolutionized your life. Anybody here, where you just inquired something about someone close to you and, and the response, the answer that you got so transformed and changed everything about you, not only your internal self, but your external self. You see, Nehemiah is going to be kind of ripped out of a very good circumstance and situation as he's service, in service to the king, and he's going to receive a new call from God right here in chapter 2. The very course of Nehemiah's life will take a massive detour, an entirely new direction. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, Nehemiah asks some close friends, hey, what's going on back at home? 
There was uh, this, I will just call it the Babylonian exile, this thing where um, many Jews were being deported from their homeland. And, and Nehemiah's interested, he's, he's, he's wondering where everything and what, what's going on. And without getting too much in the backstory and the details of this deportation of the Jewish people of, from their homeland, and obviously for the sake of time, I would like to focus on Nehemiah's response. If you could put up verse 4 of chapter 1. Verse 4 of chapter 1. As soon as I, Nehemiah, heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, if you could, uh, I don't know why I did not. Can I borrow a Bible? <laughs> this is embarrassing. Is a pastor not bringing a Bible? What, what version is this? Praise the Lord. Oh, my goodness. We're off to a great start Sunday morning. Um, actually, we'll just skip over that. But if you wanted to kind of get a, a kind of poetic feel, a kind of emotional feel of what these exiles were going through, these uh, people who were deported, you can actually look at Psalms 137, 1 through 9. It kind of gives a feel of what the emotional uh, status was of these people in that um, horrific season. So, but getting back to Nehemiah, uh, when Nehemiah receives this news, and sorry if we're going a little bit fast, but there's a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to land somewhere, so if you could hold on to your seats, that would be appreciated. Not literally, just, anyways. Uh, hard crowd, hard crowd this morning. Um, so naturally, when Nehemiah receives this news, he's visibly shaken, right? He's overwhelmed with sadness in verse 4 of chapter 1. But what we need to understand is Nehemiah's distress here is not only the result of what he's hearing, that the walls of Jerusalem have fallen and have been burnt down to the ground. Nehemiah's response when hearing the news is indicative of his awareness to the fact that God was calling him to a new service. Essentially, instead of Nehemiah serving the king, he would now receive a call from God to serve God's people. Are you tracking with me? God cares a great deal about his people. The reality of this new call seeps into Nehemiah's heart. And essentially, uh, he goes on this four-month period. We have an abbreviated account in verses 5 through 11. But he, he, he kind of goes into a season of intense prayer and fasting for 40 days. So that account actually happens in verses 5 through 11. So if we were to recap in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter of Nehemiah... He receives news of his homeland walls being destroyed and receives also a call, a call to action. He's gripped by sadness and gripped by the call to rebuild the walls. In that season of distress and receiving the call of God, he takes some time to seek God. How many know that when you receive the call of God, you might want to you know, kind of sketch out within your calendar time to hear from God. Maybe wrap some prayer and wrap some fasting around what it is that God's called you to do rather than just hastily taking action. And this is what Nehemiah does. He, he's seeking God. He, he's asking God, what's my next step? And this brings us to chapter two where Nehemiah's emotional state is witnessed. Thank you so much. 
uh, ESV. And you know what? I'm just going to read from the overhead. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, this is awkward enough. I've already made it, made it totally awkward. Um, yeah, did a lot this morning, sorry. Um, Nehemiah 2, verse two and th- verses 2 and 3. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah right here has that casual kind of friendly connection with the king, right? What we talked about earlier, he has this informal conversation. The king, as a friend, witnesses the countenance of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is sad. And he's not just sad about what's happening in Jerusalem. He he is actually kind of received the call of God and responding probably to the call of God with a certain amount of sobriety and maybe even sadness. So Nehemiah goes on to explain the reason for his sadness to the king. And he finds favor in the king's sight. The king allows him to go back to his homeland to rebuild the walls. Not only does he permit Nehemiah to go back, but he provides some some very key things for Nehemiah's journey. I mean, this is amazing. It just kind of shows you that friendly connection that he shared with the king. And those things that the king provided are actually listed in verse 7 of chapter 2. So up until this point, friends, everything seems to be going swell for Nehemiah again. Right? He's got the word of the Lord. He's maybe contemplating a bit concerned about what the king's response is going to be. He presents it to the king. He wins the king's favor. The king sends him with some provisions. And everything seems to go well up until this point. But then in verse 10 of chapter 2, if you would put it up, something interesting emerges in the story. But then Sambalat the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this and displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of God's people. Man, the enemy. Someone takes notice. The enemy takes notice and becomes irritated and displeased that somebody actually has The forethought, somebody actually is considering the welfare of God's uh, people. I I personally found uh, the reason for their displeasure to be somewhat annoying and, 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 and interesting at the same time. They're not happy in that time where Nehemiah's in Jerusalem. Um, you know, he, they're, 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 they're not really bugging him all that much in those opening verses uh, as Nehemiah is um, serving the king. But they just, they just pop. They just emerge here in the story when somebody finally is filled with the call of God. And, and the main kind of grip, the main kind of leading or the main kind of direction is uh, Nehemiah not ser- seeing seeking the welfare of himself, not seeking his own reputation, his own name, but the welfare of God's people. And here comes the enemy. I mean, of all things. Think about it. They don't rear their ugly heads in the first couple of chapters uh, when it all seems well for Nehemiah. They don't emerge in that 40-day time when Nehemiah is fasting and praying and contemplating his next move. Nehemiah's enemies come out of the woodwork when Nehemiah takes action. Can anybody resonate with that this morning? 
You know, it seems like the enemy is nowhere to be found. Nothing's kicking against you. Nothing is warring against you. Then suddenly you finally make those decisions. Oh, I'm going to move in faith and take action. There suddenly he is nervously waiting to oppose what God has put in your heart to do. So Nehemiah takes action and the welfare of God's people become what is paramount to Nehemiah's mission. You know, in my life, I don't know if anybody can resonate with this, but I find that the, um, the, the enemy is interested in me and opposing me right about the time I've landed on what God has called me to do. Right about that time when I have that yes in my heart, that moxie to kind of get up and go, that grace to kind of just like, yes, Lord, I receive this call. And, and it seems right about the time that I have this yes in my spirit, the enemy is there, ready to oppose me. I found it interesting that it wasn't the action only that Nehemiah's enemies were nervous about. It, it was the cause. It, it was the cause. Uh, that, the, the welfare, that, the, verse 10, it, it sticks out to me. When the, the Bible would use such language to identify or define Nehemiah's purpose. Meaning, it's interesting to me, it's actually, it moves my heart, that, that kind of the priority in Nehemiah's heart wasn't necessarily just to rebuild the walls, but it was like, my people are hurt, God, your people are hurting, and he makes that the driving influence of his heart to leave his comfort, his safety, and security. And he goes. I find that moving. I want to be like Nehemiah. Listen, when the church, when, when, when our mission becomes, when the driving force is, when the driving force, when our mission is, uh, is, is, is the welfare of others, when our cause is more about people than it is brands and names and, and pastors and worship teams. Oh, when, when we finally get it like Nehemiah gets it, when the welfare of God's people become what motivate us to move and call us to action, then we will see, we will see revival, friends. We will see the move of God we long for. Usually, it takes these things. It takes redirecting our focus and placing them upon what is higher, what is better, and what is where actually God is. And so the primary, I'm trying to find the right word, but the, the focus, the focus of Nehemiah is God's people. This moves us on to verse 11 in chapter 2. I'm sorry for sweating. Uh, it's kind of a problem. I don't know where I inherited it from. My dad doesn't sweat. My mom doesn't sweat. None of my siblings sweat. Uh, it's, sure, don't say that. 
Chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. This is where Nehemiah, you can put up on the screen. I won't read. It's, a, it's quite a bit of verses. But this is where Nehemiah finally goes in to Jerusalem and starts inspecting the walls. And for three days, the Bible says he inspects the damages and, and kind of, I, I believe, comes up with a plan and, 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 and kind of, you know, in, in assessing the damage, he now has to step into leading uh, a great, great work. And, and, and I'm sure he's overwhelmed. I mean, even though um, some of his uh, job descriptions as a cupbearer would have probably prepared him for this moment, this was a monumental task. And, and so he's inspecting the walls. He spends about three days again inspecting them and most likely comes up with a plan. Now, in order to keep the service on track today, you can read those things for yourself later, but I believe that um, Nehemiah does two things when he inspects these walls. Um, Nehemiah counts the cost. Nehemiah counts the cost ahead of him. It's a great undertaking, right? He would need to evaluate the damage and, and try to think about how is he going to rally people around this cause to, to rebuild these walls. And so Jesus preached that in Luke chapter 14, 28 through 31. Here he is. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it, otherwise when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and, it was not, and he was not able to finish. So Nehemiah, in that three-day kind of stand at time and observing the damage of these walls, he's most likely counting the cost. And, and he's not most likely just counting the cost for himself. He's thinking about those in whom he's going to rally around the call to rebuild these walls. I love that. When God gives us a vision, when he gives us a mission, when he gives us something to do, we should, church, consider the cost of what he's called us to do. So many Christians receive a call. They go headstrong into trying to execute and bring about that call and that mission in their own strength. And in the next three days, it peters, it wanes, it loses focus because we never started off first considering the cost. That's why so many ministries today pop up and as quick as they pop up, they disappear because nobody prepared themselves. What will this cost me? Most likely, if God's called you to something, it will cost you something. So Nehemiah counts the cost. I love it. There's a story, I don't know if you're familiar with John Bevere. Anybody here familiar with John Bevere? If you believe it or not, John Bevere and me used to be good friends before he became really big and well-known. And now I don't think he knows me, but praise God. Um, some time ago, years ago, he wrote this book uh, called Undercover. And this book was about um, coming under um, local authority, like pastoral authority. And we won't get into the theology behind it. I love the book. And my church was actually going through it at the time as a Bible study. And so um, there was this great story attached to when he wrote this book. He was out in this field because, unfortunately, 
and most likely unbeknownst to him, there was a lot of kickback regarding the book. He lost a lot of friends. Um, a lot of people disagreed with it theologically, um, disagreed with it doctrinally, and, and so even some of his closest friends were emailing him, calling him, just like tearing apart and saying, John, what have you, what have you done? And he told the story of him like walking out in this open field near his house and just kind of whining and complaining to God and, and asking God, Lord, why did you put this in my heart? To, why, why did you give me this mandate to write this book? Just so the follow-up could, the follow is so great. I've lost so many close friends, so many people who have turned against me now. Why did you do this to me? And, and it was funny. He said that the Lord spoke to him uh, quite um, uh, you know, earnestly but lovingly and said, John, I didn't choose you. I actually chose two people before you and they chose not to do it. They considered the cost. Did you? <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. Friends, are we taking in consideration the cost of what We've received from God as like a call, a mission, or a vision. You know, I remember I took, before full-time ministry, I took two months. I had a very wealthy woman who was wanting to finance me uh, and, and, and kind of free me up to be in full-time ministry. And, and I took two months to just seek the Lord. Why? Because as grandiose as it sounded to leave my job and to kind of stop working for the man and kind of do what's in my heart to do when it comes to ministry, I knew that as grandiose as it may have felt and, and, and as lovely as it may have sounded, I knew in going into it, oh, there was probably going to be a cost to pay. And it sounds crazy, but friends, take time. When God has called you to something, Take time. Wrap some prayer. Wrap some fasting around it. Take time to say, God, can I do this? I don't get a lot of amens here. Oh, you don't have to do that. Just to... But thank you. Thank you. But seriously, guys. Seriously, so Many ministries just pop up. They spring up. Ah, you know, when we started Hilltop Church, we took at least the first year and a half to not just come out and say, we're a church, yeah, look at us, we're going to plant a church. Ah, you know, God had spoken to us clearly to just come out slowly, move slowly, pray and fast because most likely the, the cost is going to be great. And I can honestly say now, four years later, that the cost has been great. But you know what? Had I not taken that year and a half just to go slow, pray and fast, get the mind of God, this church would probably not exist today. Consider the cost when God has called us into something. I'll just put this little side note here. If your call is small, sorry, I didn't mean that to come out that way. It's a little rhyme play. You know? um, but if your vision is nearsighted and your call is too small, 
in that it's something you can do in your own strength, right? If it's something that you can do or accomplish in your own strength, with your own finances, with your own intelligence, you know, most likely it's not a call that God has given you. Or, or, or maybe you've just become really good at managing it, you know? And, and you have a, like a bit of a, like a piece of what God's called you to do, but yet you, you've learned, anybody, can anybody resonate with this? You've just learned how to just get by with a very, very little amount of effort and attention and prayer that you can give it and just enough to manage it. I've done that so many times in my life. God wants to give us a big call here at Hilltop Church. And then number two, after Nehemiah considered the cost, he does something very cool. He invites people. He invites people into what he's about ready to embark on. Friends, for lack of better words, I would like to invite some of you into this storyline of what God is building through this church. Nehemiah 2, 17 Here he goes, Nehemiah, probably standing on a rock. Then I said to them, you see this trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that has been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, listen to this, they said, let us. (laughs) What pastor doesn't want to hear that? It's from somebody out in the crowd. Let us rise up and build. Usually it's like, well, just let a small handful of people, you know, like you got like 12 of us trying to do this thing. But no, there's this corporate, overwhelming kind of sense of like, no, we will rise. We will build with you, Nehemiah. Come on. We need some champions like this in the church today. There's a need. Get to work. (laughs) It's essentially the storyline here, first two chapters. There's a need. The walls need rebuilding. Let's get to work. Let's rise up. Let's link arms. Let's do this thing. And looky, looky, who pops back up into the narrative of the story. Nehemiah's enemies. In verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat and Hornite and the, I'm sorry, when when Sanballat, the Hornite, Hornite, whatever, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, I, this guy is an extra, I guess, added on enemy, um, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The enemy will always target, meaning he will always fight against the work of the church, the collective unified work of the church. When the people are unified, the enemy works to disqualify. He he starts, what are you doing? You know what? Everything is driven at this moment by fear. See, the enemy's getting nervous. This is not just Nehemiah, a lone soldier, a little maverick out there trying to do it. He has now rallied the people around the cause 
And oh man, you think I'm sweating bad right now. The enemy is nervous. Guys, the enemy is not concerned by the long soldiers out there, the long rangers, the mavericks out there trying to do it all by themselves. The enemy really gets nervous, really gets threatened when the church has that, let us rise and build. I got three of you. Too many mavericks in the church today. I'm just prophetic, man. Just gotta, you know, just gonna hear from the Lord. If you were prophetic, you would hear from the Lord. And he was said, get involved, get invested. I'm just, you know, I'm too smart for those Christians, you know, too intellectual. Just hear the way that guy slaughters the English language. <laughs> Give me a break. Please. Come on, guys. The church is at its best. It's at its best when we are in it to win it, when we are in it to win it, when we are in it together. Twelve of you. Yeah, give it time. We'll we'll work up to hopefully the, the whole group. It's interesting that these three men were actually, these three enemies were actually part of the people group that were driven off from the Lord when the Israelites first took the promised land. And so you see their goal, their kind of advantage, their, 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 their perspective is not the people. It's about what they have now currently as governors, as landowners. They, they, it, would, it would be very fitting for them if the walls of Jerusalem just kept, you know, just stayed down, burnt down. See, they start to get nervous. They start to really get jittery because something's taking place. Something is happening. And then, for lack of time, we move on to Nehemiah 3. And, I, you know, I honestly, in reading Nehemiah 3, I was like, is this just here to frustrate pastors? Because um, really it's just a story of how they kind of locked in to what God was calling them to do in rebuilding these walls. And so they kind of, if you could picture it, they kind of broke up into groups. And, you know, a, a group of 10 or 15 were rebuilding one part of the wall, while a, a group of another 15 to 20 people were rebuilding another part of the wall. And this was kind of going on in, 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 in a procession. It was kind of... You know, everybody, it wasn't just like they were building sections together as a group. They were building many sections. And I believe, if memory serves me right, the walls were rebuilt in 61 days. 61 days. That is phenomenal. Yet in the church today, we can't even launch a translation you know, you know, service to our Spanish-speaking and Portuguese-speaking people. It takes us like five months. Or a year, I don't know, it's just, what? Where did our moxie go, church? Where did our, where did our, 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 our heart want to get in there and get invested to lock arms with others in the church and work 
towards the building of God's kingdom. You see, guys, you're not building Daryl Temple's kingdom. I don't consider myself the lead pastor of this church. I consider Jesus the lead pastor of this church. Therefore, my sweat, my energy given to different tasks in these church has nothing to do with Daryl Temple. Nothing. It's that I want to throw into what Jesus is building. And as far as I know, what Jesus is building and is kind of resurrected, seated at the right hand of God ministry is the church. Yeah, she's not as beautiful as I want it. Yeah, it's, it's not as perfect as I want it. Yeah, I get it. But, but Jesus is building it, and that's the way I see it. And therefore, I want to be part of what Christ is building. Thank you, John. <laughs> Samuel, thank you. Believe it or not, I've got a couple fans in this audience. I'm <laughs> oh, just kidding. Do, do we see it like that? Do we, do, we, do, we, do we see church in a way that we don't get confused and say, oh, this is just Daryl and Bethany's thing? You know, this, this is oh, what I'm doing right now, this, you know, running these slides, making that coffee, ushering, shoveling this morning. God bless you, Fabiano. You know, do we see those as acts unto Jesus saying, Lord, we want to throw in, we want to get behind what you're building in the earth? Or we just see it as, oh, that's just, you know, Daryl and Bethany's thing. We're just, we're joining. Oh, you know, our small groups, every little small detail, guys is us working together, building the body of Christ, building the church of God. And if you're, if you're confused about what to give yourself to, just give yourself to what Jesus is already doing. I, I, I don't, you know, I get kind of floored by Christians who come to me, I just, it's a weird season, man. Just don't know what God's calling me to do. I could give you a couple clear points in Scripture if you need some help. Like there's just, you know, I mean, there's just some, like, there's some clear things here that you can just start to act upon and do. And, and hey, if God moves you on in a new, another season somewhere down the road, so be it. But you don't have to be confused. There's plenty here to start with. And so I think, I think Nehemiah gives us kind of a clear kind of illustration of what Paul was talking in Corinthians and Romans about how every joint, how every person, how every gift working together is what God is looking for in the church. I, you know, you have all these various people working on different parts of the wall here, working together. I'm sure everybody had their, you know, you know, Maybe this group over there, their interests and their reasoning for joining in was different than this group over here by the dung gate. It was really there in chapter 3. It's weird, I know. But, you know, I'm sure the interests, you know, varied in why some had interest for their families. Some had interest in their livestock and their wealth, you know, whatever it is. But they pulled together. And their battle cry was this, let us not let the pastor, not let the elder, not let Nehemiah, but let us rise up and build. 
Guys, it's okay to clap. Like, it's church. I mean, if you don't clap, you might as well cry because here I am like yelling at you. Like, So yes, this, this is a cheesy attempt to get more of you guys signed up and rallying behind what this church is doing. And I, I, listen, I have no problem saying that. Why? Because I do it myself. I do it myself. I feel like God in this season is saying, let us rise up and build I feel like the battle cry of the church is come together. Come together. There are so many ways in which you can add to the strength and the might of this church in this city. From small groups uh, to prayer to, uh, I I mean, the, the children. I mean, really, the list goes on and on and on. If you are confused are kind of, I don't know what God is doing in this season. Take a couple steps. Just get involved with the people around you. Get involved with a church that you intend. Get in there. Start swinging. Roll up your sleeves and let's build a wall around this puppy. Come together. Church together. It's, it's being together. Togetherness, community is so much better. It's so much better. It's just the, it's the way church should be. And so I myself want to take cues from Nehemiah. And I, I want to start working with some of you guys. I want to start locking arms, saying, God, what do you have for us to build? What, what, do you, what vision do you want to give us? What, what gift in this church would add so much strength to, to an area in our ministry that doesn't have strength right now. You know? There's so many gifts out here in these seats. They're, they're, and we are barely tapping into the strength and the quality of, of the people that we have here. And, and for me as a pastor, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. But friend, I'm never going to know what you're gifted in. I'm never going to know what you're called to do if I don't know you. Let's pray. Father, I've done what I can. And Lord, we look to you to do the rest. Lord, I do pray that even in my weakness, your strength would be made known. That Lord, in the weakness of even my communication and this message, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts, Lord. I pray, God, that we again, Lord, as a church, would turn the corner, that we would turn a massive corner in our history, Lord, where we, like Nehemiah and the people in his day, would have this battle cry, let us, not let the pastor, not let just certain ones, select few, but let us, the collective body of Christ, join together. You see, here it is, guys. Nehemiah, what Nehemiah received was from God. It wasn't from Nehemiah. 
what, what Nehemiah received, that call to go rebuild, it wasn't about Nehemiah. It was about God and his plan. You see, when, when we're doing this thing, church, we have to understand collectively it's not about what Daryl wants. It's not about just me and Bethany or a couple others who are leading and doing things in this church. It's about what we can do. It's about us. And, that, and that's the beautiful thing about the New Testament's writing especially when Paul talks about how the gifts add to the collective strength of the body. It, it, doesn't just, it doesn't just say, come under one leader. You know, It doesn't just say, hey, just serve and do and do and do for the sake of this person. It, there's, a, there's a sense in the text that you, you really get the feel that this is not just about one person. It's about the many. It's about all of us. And it really starts getting good, friends. When every joint, when every member, when every gift is working in harmony for the building up of the church. Father, do your work in us. Do your work, God. Take us into a new season, Lord, where it's not just 15 or 20 people, but it's hundreds of hundreds of hundreds working together, building things for the kingdom of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, I'd like to invite George, not George Stalker, sorry, Kay.